Clear prop. Star 73 is Cherokee, number two, following twin traffic, three mile final. There's something One trailer Bravo, Rakesford in runway 25, going uh, four mile final. This is Behind the Prop with United Flight Systems owner and licensed pilot Bobby Doss and his co host, major airline captain and designated pilot examiner Wally Mulhern. Now, let's go Behind the Prop. What's up, Wally? Hey, Bobby, how are you? I am fantastic. This will be by far the longest distance recording ever in the behind the prop history. Wally just landed it landed in Frankfurt, Germany about an hour ago. And uh, I am sitting in the fly school here in Spring, Texas at David Wayne Hooks. And we're going to knock this show out and hopefully there won't be long pauses between us talking since we're, he's about a third of the way around the world right now. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Sounds like you're sitting right across from me, so exactly. uh, we'll knock this out. This week, we decided we would uh, take some of our listener questions that we've got over time, throw in some things that uh, some students have asked around the flight school, and kind of do one of those uh, Your Questions, Your Answer shows. And uh, some of it will apply to checkride stuff, some of it will just apply to being a good pilot, and uh, we'll talk through these things, give, us, give you guys our thoughts and and feedback and then if you guys have thoughts and feedback please share them with us on social media or as always send us an email bobby at behind the com or wally at behind the com. so uh, study group going on today at the fly school asked a handful of students some thoughts about what they would ask us if they were able to sit in this room and ask us questions wally so we'll start with those and then jump into some bigger questions that we've got online over time as well so they were looking for some help with the right question or the, maybe the right answer to some questions. And uh, we've, while we talked about it, it was interesting that there was some spins on this question. So if what would be the, the, their question specifically was, what is the right answer to a question of if, I, if I've just lost comms, I'm 4.5 miles from a Delta tower or airport. So they're half mile outside of the airspace. And they've lost comms. Really, it's a full electrical failure. We've talked about that a bunch. But what's the right thing to do? And what's the right answer to the question if said DPE were to ask me this question to uh, do the right thing, be safe? And that's about all they gave me uh, as it relates to the question. So I've lost comms half a mile from the four-mile ring in a Delta airspace or approaching a Delta airspace. It is by far my best and safest place to land what should I do if I can't squawk 7,600 and I have not already established two-way communication? Good question. Yeah, well, unfortunately, it's not a black and white question. Um, there, are, there are a lot of variables involved here. So we're assuming that we're in a good weather day and, and you see the airport. Um, and I think you said that we have had a total electrical failure. So... The thing that I think we have to remember is that the regulations uh, around loss com procedures, the procedures that we have in the in the in the regs and in the the aim, um, were written a really long time ago. the 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 rules, the regulations, really haven't changed much since. Um, for sure the 1970s because I started flying in, in the 80s and so I'm assuming that, that the things were you know written in the 70s for the 80s 
Um, but I, I, I do believe that the lost comm procedures were probably written um, maybe as far back as the 1930s and 1940s, where lost comm was, was kind of a common thing. Um, radios quit working a lot. Um, the, the radios weren't solid state back then. They had tubes in them. The airplanes uh, jumped around a lot, and, and it was very easy for, for these radios to break back then or quit working. So lost calm without a total electrical failure was, was kind of common back in the day. And now it's, it's not. Um, I would venture to say that... Um, um, I don't know what percentage of lost calm in the real world, but but most of them, if we can take out user error, if we can take all the, com, the lost comms that, that weren't just simply uh, the, the audio panel being set up incorrectly, um, I, I do believe that the most common reason for lost calm is going to be loss of nav as well. In other words, a total electrical failure. Um, so for me, the simplest, it, if, if, if it were me and I were going into a Delta airspace and I were a half a mile from it and I had a total electrical failure, I would turn. I would not enter the Delta airspace. I would, you know, if I'm four miles from my airport, um, I'm probably pretty low. I'm going to pull out my telephone and I'm going to try to call the tower uh, on my iPhone. If I don't know the tower's number, I'm going to call an FBO there uh, where I'm going. I'm going into JBL Aviation is where I'm planning on parking the airplane and getting fuel tonight. I'm going to call them up, and I'm going to say, hey, I'm an airplane out here. I'm trying to come in. I've lost my radio. I need to call the tower. Do you have the, the phone number for the tower? And th they probably have it. They probably have it right there. They'll tell you right then. Um, I then call the tower on my telephone, and I've now established communication. You know, it's, it's communication. It's not VHF radio communication. It's just communication. So that's what I'm going to do, very, very simply put. Yep. So uh, in our little ad hoc conversation, I said almost the identical same thing and said, look, we're going to talk to them on the cell phone. And all three of these students that we're studying together, none have a Bluetooth headset. I said, okay, it'll still work. Scream at them on speakerphone or you can hear them. I've made a phone call without my Bluetooth headset before. Um, and then, of course, they did the same, making it harder on me. And said, so, well, I've actually, my phone's died. Now now my cell phone's dead. What do I do? Well, now your cell phone is dead. Um, you, you know, you could, you know, you, you're basically allowed to, break the rules to the extent needed to meet the requirements of an emergency. So if you need to go in and land there, uh, you think that that is the safest course of action. If there's a if there's an airport outside of that Class D airspace that I can turn, and, turn around and go land at, I'm going to do that. I'm going to go back there. I'm going to land there. And again, I'm going to get on the phone. First of all, in the meantime, I'm going to charge my telephone while I'm on the ground at the, the other airport, and um, I'm going to make a phone call from from there, and I'm going to tell them we're coming in. I had a, a scenario where I was um, uh, 
probably a private pilot many, many years ago. Uh, I was flying from Pine Bluff, Arkansas, or somewhere up in Arkansas to Monroe, Louisiana, and uh, we had a, a total electrical failure. And so we stopped in Crossett, Arkansas, which is about 50 miles north of Monroe, maybe a 30-minute flight. And um, I, I was in the right seat, and, and someone else was in the left seat. Um, we, we taxied over to uh, a phone booth. There was actually a phone booth outside an FBO back in the day when, when, when you had phone booths. And um, I, I told the guy I was flying with, don't shut the engine down because we've, we've had an electrical failure. Um, um, so drop me off. I called up the tower. And uh, what it was, it was funny because we were about 30 minutes from official sunset, and uh, the, the tower guy said to me, he says, how long is it going to take you to get, get here? And I said, about 35 minutes. He says, well, we can't let you land without lights. I said, it'll take us 29 minutes. He said, okay, we can let you land. So basically, here I am 52 miles away on the ground, um, and they basically cleared us in and uh, cleared us to land before we even took off from the other airport. So, um, you know, we, we coordinated that way. Um, so that would be my second option. Um, but if, if that option doesn't exist, um, you know, go ahead and penetrate that, that Delta airspace and, and go in and um, you're going to have to look for light signals. Yep. If it's an emergency, then you get, you get, you get to do what you need to do for sure. Um, okay. Changing subjects a little bit and we'll bounce around a lot here. Um, if a student gets asked a question on a check ride and they don't know the answer, is it okay to say, I don't know the answer, but I know where to find the answer. One of the briefing points for my check rides is that the check ride is an open book check ride. Uh, it, it, the, the ground portion is open book. Now, I do tell them that uh, just the way it, it will work, if they have to look up everything I ask them, we're going to be there all day. And so we're probably not going to fly that day. But, you know, there are some things that just from a time standpoint that, that you you do, you just need to know. But in, in theoretically, it is an open book. Um, uh, the, the ground portion is open book. To me, when an applicant shows me that they can find an answer they they might you know in certain cases they might show me more than having just memorized it because um i don't i don't know everything nobody knows everything but you know there's the old saying of feed a man a fish you feed him for a day teach a man how to fish you feed him for life and that's that's kind of the way i feel with this is if if you if, if I ask you about, um, you know, if, if the, the so-and-so is inoperative on the airplane, can we make the flight? You know, a lot of times they spit off this acronym of, of what's required for day VFR. Um, I, I, I don't know what those letters in that acronym mean, but um, if they say, let me, let me look it up in the regulations and, um, and I'll let you know. I'm perfectly fine with that. All right. I'm sure that makes people a little bit more comforted that they don't have to be a perfect pilot at the private stage, you know? Right, right. Um, it's unfortunate that the knowledge tests are not open book, but uh, that's that's just the way it is. 
Yeah, I'm sure a lot of people would love that to change. Um, so a couple questions similar, so I'll kind of merge them together here. But uh, the question from this study group, the all, all private students, so pretty close to their checkride phases, um, asked, when is it safe to fly a checkride? Um, what's, what's a DP thinking about the the decision to be made about flying safe and kind of as part of that a question came up about discontinuing because of an turbulence air med or 15 gusting 30 like what are you what are, what are dpes expecting from a private student as it relates to making the decision possibly and then what is too much um in your hypothetical opinion i guess is really what what they're asking for there yeah, well, I would say 15 gusting to 30 is too much. I, I certainly would not think most private pilots would um, would would be successful um, in a, a check ride with with the winds 15 gusting to 30. Um, you know, the guidance that that we as examiners have from the FAA is that we are not to start a check ride unless we can reasonably expect to finish it. Um, so what does that mean? Uh, you know, if, if it's uh, 200 overcast and forecast to say, stay 200 overcast all day long, and we start the check ride and we do the ground portion and, and um, uh, we get ready to go fly, and lo and behold, it's 200 overcast, um, well, Obviously, we can't fly, and, and that was probably a bad call on my part for even starting the check ride. So the intent is to finish the ground, the ground portion and the flight portion within the same day. Now, we do have uh, some lenience with a discontinuance. We can, we can stop the check ride for somebody getting sick. It may be the examiner. It may be the applicant. Uh, weather is, is a the most common cause for a discontinuance and then uh, mechanical reasons. And I mean, there could be some other reasons that we're not even thinking about here. Somebody gets a call from home and says, Hey, the hot water heater exploded. You need, you need to come home. Our house is flooding that, you know, that would be a valid reason to discontinue a check ride. Um, you know, my, my check rides as most I guess all examiners' check rides involve the planning of a cross-country flight. Um, so we, you know, we will talk extensively about the weather, the current weather on this cross-country flight. And, um, you know, I, I just start with, well, could we make, would you, I shouldn't say could you, I, I should say, would you make the flight today? And, um, you know, uh if the answer is yes, I would fly from here to wherever they're going on their cross country, um, then we're probably in pretty good shape to go ahead and proceed with a check ride. A lot of times they may plan a given altitude on their cross country of maybe 6,500 feet, and and the the weather today is is 6,000 broken everywhere along their trip along the flight. So we may have to modify the cruise altitude to 4,500 feet or or something like that. Um, but you know, one thing that we we I am looking at is the applicant's ability to make some decisions, and. Um, um, you know, I, I try to be, uh, uh, 
I try not to lead the applicant too much, but there are times where, you know, I might do a check ride in the morning and I, I come in, I'm getting ready to do an afternoon check ride, and I might say to the applicant, boy, I just flew and it is really, really rough out there. I mean, it's almost impossible to, to hold altitude within a couple hundred feet. You know, and that's that's kind of a, a hint that maybe maybe today wouldn't be the most ideal day to do this check ride. Yeah, well, that's kind of a follow-up question that they asked was, do the tolerances change based on the winds, right? So, you know, if it's 15 gusting 20, do I get a little bit of a uh, a blue ribbon maybe for two hundred, you know, 125 on either side? Because it's kind of tough, Wally, to to maintain that altitude at 20 knots you may get a a a extra pat on the back and say wow that was a really good job but but no the the tolerances do not change i mean we the 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 standards are the standards and uh, we don't have gusty day standards or hot day standards so um yeah i mean uh, uh uh the standard is the standard well, that's what I shared with them as well. But the question then became, well, am I allowed to ever miss the tolerances on the check ride? And I thought that was a really good question because I've read the ACS. But what are your thoughts on someone on the first, you know, they take off, they've done everything good to this point. You you climb up, they do some stalls really well. You ask them to do steep turns, maybe as an example, and the first steep turn starts off bad and they lose 150 feet. And they get they get the they get it back is the check right over right there no no and and the acs addresses that it it has a, a section where it talks about if a tolerance is uh exceeded if if it's immediately uh or i, I don't know if the word is immediately but if if you correct it uh right away um yeah you're we're okay we're okay good and that I, I thought that's what I had read in the past, and that's what I shared with them as well. So all good questions from some students around here working hard on a afternoon to try and get ready for some check rides. And I, I know for a fact you're going to get to meet a couple of them in a few weeks. So uh, they're excited and also very nervous, as you can imagine. Most of them are. Yeah, and, and, and I, I tell them that there is no such thing as a perfect flight, and there's certainly no such thing as a a perfect check ride there's some really good ones but you're going to make mistakes and uh two things the first thing i tell them is that there's no rear rear view mirror in the airplane in other words what has happened has happened we we can't change what has happened um if if you did that first steep turn and and uh yeah you got 130 feet low and 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 you corrected it well i mean you you, you can't you can't change that um but the other thing is something that that I'm looking for is is how does an applicant manage a mistake? Because mistakes will be made, and uh, you know with the airline we 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 brief it. The first thing we do is we we talk about um, threats threats forward. In other words, uh, you know we we what are the potential threats today? Gee, it's uh. Uh, the weather might be a threat. Maybe uh, something is inoperative on the airplane, um, uh, a thrust reverser or an auto throttle or, or 
something like that, that that's a threat because they, they're usually working. So the fact that they're not is a threat. So we try to identify the threats. I mean, uh, a threat may be, you know, the, the kind of flying I'm doing, long-haul flying. I mean, a 10-hour flight. So you've got three or four pilots, and, um, uh, you know, you're, you're changing seats. Um, but, but fatigue Fatigue could be a threat. Um, it's usually not for me because when I go back in the, the rest seat or the bunk, I don't have a tr- trouble at all in uh, falling asleep. So I usually get plenty of sleep. Mm-hmm. Good, good, good. So let's talk about some other questions that have been sent to us, and we, we've gonna, we were going to incorporate them to other shows. We'll ask some of these questions now. The question is, what's the right way to transfer from one, one part 141 flight school to another part 141 flight school? And uh, that's one that I'll take. It, uh, it depends a little bit about um, – really is it the best decision or is it a requirement right i think um depending on the course that you're taking private instrument commercial flight instructor multi-engine there are different regulation requirements but the way the regulations read is it's really all about that school's tco or training course outline and half of the school's training course outline must be delivered by the school that you're going to quote unquote graduate from enable to enable you to be able to transfer so you have to meet all of the requirements part 141 so we'll just use instrument as an example you have to fly 35 hours of flight time and what that flight time is made up of is in the regulations but that would mean you'd have to have 17 and a half hours of flight time directed by the school that you're going to graduate from and probably not exactly that number but you have to have at least that number from that school so um, if you flew 32 hours with the first school and you only had three hours of requirements left and you don't have to transfer, meaning you're not moving or there's not a real specific reason, then it would make a ton of sense to finish up at that first flight school if possible. Um, so you don't have to go fly the other 17 and a half somewhere else to graduate from. Um, there's always an option to quit 141 and go part 61 and finish up that's normally not a good option for most 141 students for myriads of different reasons but normally there's a restricted atp or something that's tied to that that they want to kind of try and maintain so uh, the big key is half of the training would have to be done at the school that the chief will write a graduation certificate for you and that varies from private instrument commercial so Seek those. Seek out to the new school if you want. Talk to their chief. Show them your current training records, and see if there's a, a good plan that y'all can put together to uh, knock that stuff out together. Um, at our airport here, Wally, the localizer has been out, and that's kind of painful for a lot of people trying to work on their instrument. Can't shoot a localizer here. But the question came up: Do all localizers have a back course? This one currently does not have a back course, but do all localizers have a back course? That is the question. Do you have a comment on that? No, no, they don't. <laughs> they don't all have a back course. Um, uh, can you fly all localizers backwards? I, I, I guess you probably could, but in all likelihood, um, I, I would guess probably more localizers do not have a back course than do. And when I say have a back course, I'm talking about a 
published back course approach. I, I think that's that's what you're asking about back course approach, right? Well, it was do they have a back course? And I think it, it's kind of an open ended question, so I'm not a thousand percent sure. But um, my guess is that the person's wondering, can I? track the localizer in from the back course and i would say maybe your radios would would do that um i sure as heck wouldn't trust it if i was flying it um i definitely wouldn't fly it as an approach in in the in imc conditions if i did not have uh, a published uh, approach for sure but the radio frequencies are there they they're shooting out signals in the front course your radios may pick them up on the back side of that localizer but i would not trust them unless it was a published back course for that given airport on yeah. that given runway for sure yeah i i'm 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 not sure i've ever really tried that and played around with it um, um i ha- i can say i have it does work a little bit but i don't think it's reliable anywhere near to a point where i would trust it for sure yeah yeah all all the uh, you know instrument approaches are actually test flown the faa comes down and a i think they have a they use a king air now um and they're out and they're they're flight checking these and and you, you hear them um uh on the on the radio the the call sign they use is flight check and um that you know the the approaches have been tested in a real airplane under various conditions so um you know it's a margin of safety that lets you know that hey this this really does work so this question came up um from an online submitter and i'm not i think i understand their question but do pilots need to keep endorsements after their check rides so i'm coming to you wally i've got my solo endorsements i've got my other endorsements that for my knowledge exam and for my ability to take this practical exam with you today and that's in a written logbook. Um, but I'm going to go to four flight after this. Is there any reason that I have to keep those old endorsements after my check ride? Uh, I would, I think the short answer is no, but I would say, why wouldn't you? Um, you know, uh, I've got my very first logbook with my solo endorsement. I mean, it's, it's, I look at it occasionally. I mean, it's in a safe, but I do look at it. Um, so I would, has anybody asked to see my solo endorsement that was endorsed on December 7th, 1981? Uh, no, nobody ever has. Um, I'm sure my, my, uh, examiner did when I took my check ride. Um, and you know, I'm going to look, I'm going to look for all the proper endorsements. Um, but, um, I'm I'm going to say no. I mean there's there's no real requirement to keep them but um then again why wouldn't you keep them? Yep. I definitely would keep them and it came up recently uh in a conversation not respected to this question but I think it's interesting this question came up. Someone was trying to uh, talk to me and I said we were talking about a high performance endorsement and she wasn't sure she had one. And I said, well, just look at it in four flight. And she said, well, it's not in four flights in my, if I had one, it would be in my paper log book. And I, what I did was I took all my paper endorsements and took a picture of them and put them in my four flight book. Now those instructors didn't sign my electronic log book, but that way I have a history of all those endorsements in four flight as well. So it can't hurt. I put my solo endorsements in there. Like they did nothing for me in my commercial days, but I kind of want that 
photo and that record, that log of all those endorsements so that ForeFlight knows what I've been endorsed to do. And I would know what I got and achieved that complex endorsement in and who signed it. It's just a photo and it's there. It's not it's not signed in ForeFlight, but the picture signed, it's still valid. I'm sure uh, someone looking at it would use that as valid proof. If I needed to go get it out of the safe, I can go get it out of the safe. But it's nice to have all those endorsements for me. It's they're um, they're kind of like merit badges in Boy Scouts or something, right? I've earned all that stuff. I don't want anybody to take it away from me. For absolutely, sure. absolutely. You know, I I um, um, you know, when I'm vetting, if you will, uh, an applicant for a check ride and looking through their logbook, you know, I'm not looking at previous um, uh, ratings or previous certificates um but occasionally i do i see some weird things on a on an application i might have a commercial pilot a part 61 commercial pilot applicant and i'm going through and i'm looking at um uh all the the numbers in the on the application this is on the the iacra application and they may have um uh 4.2 hours of solo cross country on the application and and I'll I'll typically I'll say you know I said um you know but they they have the necessary pilot and command time cross country cuz but and and I'll 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 usually send the application back to them I'll say you know I'm just looking at this and uh, with 4.2 hours of solo cross country, you don't even meet the requirements under Part 61 for a private pilot certificate. You got to have a minimum of five. So, um, um, you know, why don't you just go in and make the adjustment to that, um, just so it's things are a little bit cleaner. But, um, you know, I, you know, I do look um, for a private. I make sure they have a current solo endorsement. A 90-day solo endorsement. A lot of times, um, they they solo the first time, and the instructor forgets to um, re-endorse them. And um, I'm I'm guessing probably with with Flight Schedule Pro uh, that I know you guys use that probably keeps track of that. So in theory, it wouldn't even let the the student get dispatched. Yes, it would not for our system. And I would think most systems have those checks and balances in place to um, watch that for people. Uh, we have a very rigorous process, as you've probably seen, where we look in logbooks and, and double check everything as well. So um, it, it's, it's like I said, I think it's the merit badges for me. I'm never going to let them go. I'm never going to uh, disregard them. But I don't expect that uh, – when I take my CFI check ride one day, they're going to ask me to see my solo endorsements either. So probably not required, but something you might want to hang on to for sure as well. Interesting question. And, uh, cause I'm not sure I know every detail to this one. Uh, I'm going to let you answer it. What the cut, the, the person asking the question, uh, is working on their instrument, uh, studies right now and wants to know what is the what is a procedures turn's purpose and why is it that sometimes I, I use the procedure turn and sometimes I don't use the procedure turn? Um, good question. Uh, I, I think I know all the answers, but I'm going to defer to you, Mr. Uh, airline pilot. Yeah. Procedure turn is just to reverse course. Just, it is a course reversal maneuver. Um, let's just make up an airport. Let's say we have an airport that has runway 18 and 36, 
And uh, let's just make things real simple. Let's say there is a VOR located on the airport, and there's a VOR approach to runway 36. There's a VOR 36, and that's the only approach that we have to this airport. And you are coming in from the north. Well, that final approach course is probably going to, there's going to be some intersections south of the airport, you know, with on, on a probably the 180 degree radial with a 360 inbound course to this, this airport. And if you're coming from the north, somehow you've got to get turned around because you're from the north, you're heading south, and you need to turn around and fly to the north to fly the VOR to 36 approach. So that that's what uh, a procedure turn is designed to. It's it's to uh, reverse course. So obviously, if I'm coming from the south and I'm 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 on my course, I'm on my heading. No need to do a procedure turn because I'm already flying that course. No reason to reverse course. Yeah, in general, I would say that's true, but it's it's all dependent on the approach. It, it's hard to say that. Um, uh, a lot of times, if if you're in an air traffic control environment, they will vector you on the final. You know, they if if you're you're talking ATC, they'll they'll give you a heading, turn left, heading three two zero, maintain two thousand, they'll establish clear for the VOR three six approach into airport ABC. And if they do that, then you obviously don't need to do the procedure turn because you're on course. Correct, that is correct. Already. That is correct. But yeah, procedure turn is is just tr- is just getting you to uh, to turn around. Awesome. Well, those are all good questions, uh, and I think we're out of time for today. We try to keep these shows around 30, 35 minutes. So we have more questions. We'll do another one of these in the near future. Keep sending us your questions. Ask us questions online, and we will try to do our best to cover those on future shows. Wally's a long way from home, but he'll be returning home. Wally, uh, fly safely on your way back, and uh, I will stay behind the prop. Thanks for checking out the Behind the Prop podcast. Be sure to click subscribe and check us out online at BehindTheProp.com. Behind the Prop is recorded in Houston, Texas. Creator and host is Bobby Doss. Co-host is Wally Mulhern. The show is for entertainment purposes only and is not meant to replace actual flight instruction. Thanks for listening, and remember, fly safe. Fly safe.